This is the second Sunday of Christmas, and often we don't get to celebrate the second Sunday of Christmas because Epiphany intervenes between the first Sunday after Christmas uh, and Epiphany, so we don't read these readings very often in the lectionary. We do in the daily office, but not in the lectionary for the Eucharist. Um, so what I want to do is a little recapitulation about what's happened from Christmas to now, and then to talk about what the three readings we read may have to tell us from Jeremiah, from the letter to the Ephesians, and from uh, the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew's version of the infancy narrative, as it's called. The four affirmations that I speak about every Christmas, we affirm the goodness of our humanity, the fact that we can achieve the highest of our human potential, that it is possible for Christian people to be joyful, and that we can be and should be Christian men and women, people of peace, that that is an important thing. On the first Sunday after Christmas, we read the uh, Johannine Prologue, which is the introduction to John's Gospel. And it speaks there about, uh, it will set the pattern for how we understand John's way of understanding Jesus as uh, a, a figure that is the Word of God. And the word that's used in the Greek text can mean plan, word. My favorite definition is uh, organizing principle. That we understand the Savior as the organizing principle in our lives. Dr. William Countryman, uh, over 25 years ago now, wrote a little book. He was the professor of New Testament at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific. He wrote a little book called The Mystical Way of the Fourth Gospel. And in this book, he described how he understood uh, the main theme that courses through John's Gospel. And that theme is mystical union. So I'm going to read you his definition uh, of mystical union because I think it's a good one. There are a lot of definitions around there uh, about what this means. He describes uh, mystical union as an experience of things or persons outside myself as direct and unmediated as my experience of myself is. At one level, this may be an experience of the order of the cosmos and of my place in it, in which case it is called mystical enlightenment. At another level, it may be an experience of full knowledge of another specific being, in which case it is called mystical union. Union may be understood as implying a complete dissolution of the human who enters into it, or may appear as the complete opening of two realities into one another. You know, some of you may have had that experience in relationship. You at least have gotten close to that and understood what it is. But what Father Thomas Keating talks about in his books about contemplative prayer is how we now approach that when we understand our relationship with God. The opening of two realities, one into another, as part of that. And so part of the Christmas theme is to understand what it means when we describe Jesus as the Word of God. Jeremiah 
is not one of the happier uh, people in the Old Testament. Whenever you read from Jeremiah, I often get the blues. When I read morning prayer and evening prayer every day, uh, and you read often readings in course, so you'll have a readings, readings from Isaiah for a while, and then you'll have readings from uh, Ezekiel, or you'll have readings from one of the lesser prophets, or you'll read a lot in Genesis. And then I always, when I turn the page for the next day and we're on Jeremiah, I kind of go, oh, no. But I mention this because Jeremiah is pretty upbeat today. And he's talking about a theme that the New Testament writers are going to understand and write about in the New Testament. And Jesus himself will speak of these things uh, in his discourses and so forth. Uh, Herman Watson, who was a New Testament professor at uh, the San Francisco Theological Seminary, uh, which is in San Anselmo, be that as it may. It's a Presbyterian seminary, and it's one of the better ones. And he taught New Testament there for a long time, but he's writing in this particular case about Jeremiah. And so here's a little piece of information. Jeremiah lived and prophesied through the final catastrophic decades of the little kingdom of Judah, he survived the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. and subsequently was taken to Egypt by exile-seeking refugees. It is there that he lived out his last years. Now, Jeremiah in his book is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which came in his lifetime, and he was describing it as ju God's judgment on the people in Jerusalem because of their lack of faithfulness. And in today's reading, what he's talking about is that God uh, does not remain angry forever, that God is changeable, this is very hard for some people to get, and that God can change his mind, and that God now is working to bring the people back from exile, from a return. Now, why is this used on the second Sunday after Christmas? Because at the time of Jesus, there were many Jews in Palestine and in other places who believed that the return from exile had not be, been completed. And that in Jesus, and in his words, and in his works, we have seen a description of what it means to embody this return from exile, this restoration, this reconciliation. And Christian people have understood this text to have two references. One is external, as the people of God relating to the world and being people of peace and being people who practice restoration and reconciliation, and an internal process whereby we are able to bring some sense of restoration and reconciliation to our own inner life, to the demons that uh, we all have, our own private set. You know, the committee that lives rent-free in your head. So Jeremiah is talking about this process. And the, the, the followers of Jesus will see it recapitulated in him definitively. They will understand it in that sense. 
So in the right letter to the Ephesians, we have a continuation of this because Paul believes that once we believe, we now participate in Christ. Most, certainly the, the, the New Testament people that taught me in seminary, uh, I would say the majority of them believe that Ephesians is not Pauline, that it was written by a disciple of Paul, maybe nearly a generation later, and somebody says, well, who cares, and why do you have to upset me with this? Uh, the fact of the matter is that it's very important because it demonstrates within the New Testament itself the development of Paul's thought and the consistency by which his disciples transmitted the tradition, the Pauline tradition, which is very important. So in that sense, we see in Ephesians uh, the way in which this was done by the, by the author. How do they tell? Well, Paul wrote uh, most of the time uh, using a secretary, so he dictated his letters. And you'll read in places in the authentic letters where Paul will write. He said, see with what big letters I am writing to you in my own hand. So he says that at the end. So you know that he's, he's writing this himself. And he's dictated most of it to uh, an amanuensis, a secretary. Well, in this particular case... Uh, the, the, the language, the syntax, the style is so completely different than the authentic Pauline letters that it would lead one to believe that perhaps it was written by uh, a disciple of Paul sometime later. Any of you who have taught school for any length of time know that you could, I used to have teachers that would do this, they'd say, when you turn your paper in, I don't want you to put your name on the front of the paper, I want you to put your name on the back. So when, when people do that, after about the fourth one, you can tell who it is without even looking at the name, right? By how they write, what their style is. So Paul, when he would dictate to his secretary, he'd use a Greek word, un, O-U-N, in, English, in uh, transliterated uh, into our language, which means, you know, when I taught school, St. Michael's School in Tucson, Arizona, it was the era when kids would begin every sentence with, okay, da-da, okay, da-da, right? So you have some idea of the style, and you can look at it by reading it, and you can say, wait a minute, this doesn't look like it. So anyway, that's too much information, but it'll give you an idea of why people say that sort of thing. So he's talking about today, the writer, is talking about something that is a cornerstone of Paul's theology in the authentic letters, and that is participation in Christ. Many people believe that participation in Christ is the true center and not justification by faith through grace, although Paul held that to be very important. But what he means by participation is that once you and I believe, we're clicked in. We now understand uh, as we move forward that we're engaged in a process, in a pilgrimage, in following the Savior on the way. And this is very important. We're, we're moving with him as we begin to discern what God's, God's will and purpose is for us. So today, Matthew. Uh, what we read today, we, 
from Matthew is part of his infancy narrative, which is the beginning of the gospel. And Matthew was a Jewish Christian, probably a rabbi. And so he has a particular idea, both uh, personally in his relationship with Jesus, but also he has an idea about what it is that we describe when we think about the implications of the incarnation. Who does he embody and what does he, what does he mean for humanity? So Matthew, in the infancy narrative, uh, has Joseph dreams a dream. And in the dream, uh, he's told he needs to go to Egypt because King Herod is going to, looking for Jesus to kill him. And we read, of course, in the infancy narratives about uh, something called the slaughter of the innocents. I don't know whether you'll feel happy or unhappy, but there probably weren't as many innocents slaughtered as people thought. Right? This is another example of the difference between understanding reality in the world in terms of facts and uh, uh, in terms of explanation and story. So the infancy narratives are a story about what Matthew now is going to place before the Christian community, his community. And that is, he believes that Jesus is the new Moses. That Jesus in his person embodies the new Torah, the new law. And this law is uh, where the centerpiece is God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. God's love. And that Jesus reflects this and encourages us all to do the same. So he puts him in Egypt. And now it's time to come back. And he comes back from Egypt into the land of Israel, just as Moses did comes into the land of Israel from Egypt, the defining moment for the people of Israel. And so Jesus now embodies Moses, which would resonate with all the people that he knows and how he understands the grand narrative of God's presence in the world. So you could choose three Gospels, and I chose this one because I had the opportunity uh, to explain that to you in terms of what's important. In theology and spirituality, if you read the books about it, you'll discover that uh, the way Christmas is described as the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church. It's God's gift to the church. And Epiphany, which will begin on Tuesday, is the celebration of the manifestation of Christ to the world. So it means that as we uh, think and reflect and pray about God becoming a human being as members of the Christian church, one of the centerpieces of our self-understanding, we also then begin to understand what should we do? How do we make this manifest? How do we make manifest the promises of God and share the good news? And one of them, of course, is the possibility of being joyful Joy in the Christian context is the sure and steady belief 
that the conundrums, the uncertainties, the ambiguities, the difficulties of life will come into surer and clearer focus as we live. And it will assist us in being better human beings. And it might just make us a little bit more inclined to being peaceful. You, you know, if you're feeling serene in, internally, uh, it's pretty easy for you to reflect that back to other people. And it's infectious. So this week, when you think or you prepare for, for epiphany, uh, think it, what it means to make uh, manifest the peace of Christ to the world. A couple of weeks ago, we read from 2 Corinthians in one of the readings, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. Amen.